The Over the Bonnet podcast is brought to you by Merrymark Medical, Gimpy Foam and Rubber, Luscious Licks and NICAD Earth Moving. In this episode, I get to chat with a woman who witnessed her father stab her mother to death at the age of seven before enduring years of bullying and abuse in foster homes. These days, Donna Lee Perfect is a beacon for people working to clear past trauma and limiting beliefs and works to empower others to flourish and inspire others to do the same. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. (laughs) Well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. (laughs) You're kidding me, aren't you? Donna Lee Perfect, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thank you very much for having me here in Gympie. I'm very excited about being on your podcast today. Thanks for being here. Now, you've written a bunch of books. What are they all about? Well, yes, I have. I've written a children's series, and the children's series is about my daughter and our rescue dog, Rocky Rockstar, so the adventures of Jessie and Rocky Rockstar. And the book's about Rocky teaching Jess about kindness and compassion, life lessons. What sort of life lessons? Oh, lessons about being kind to animals, about being kind to each other, and being honest and uh, being authentic, I guess, yeah. So just everyday life lessons. What's the response been from the kids? The kids love the books and they love Rocky Rockstar. So I started a channel which was the uh, reading on the couch with Rocky Rockstar and this is also my free life-saving app. And so I started to read children's stories, famous children's stories from all over the world, like We're Going on a Bear Hunt and The Very Hungry Caterpillar. So those really favourite stories that kids know and and recognise. And Rocky was sitting on the couch next to me, and this was actually during the first lockdown in Australia. And, uh, yeah, there was just so much excitement around getting to know Rocky and, and then knowing that, hey, he's part of a children's series of his own. What does your daughter think about it all? Mixed. (laughs) Being a teenager, you know, at the beginning she was pretty excited, but, you know, being a teenager, I guess, being part of a children's series is not that cool, you know. So, yeah, there were mixed uh, mixed feelings around that. I think uh, she was was excited to know that it was going to be a legacy long term for her and, and, you know, a beautiful memory for her and her rescue dog because she's very close to Rocky. But, uh, yeah, it's probably not a really cool thing for a 17-year-old to be part of, to be honest. (laughs) So when you did it, what was the process that you went through when you wrote? It's really interesting, actually, because uh, I had a challenge put to me by by my husband. So he uh, is is an international comedian, and his his entertainer friend put a challenge to him hey let's write some books together and uh, it can be something that we can sell on the cruise ships when we are traveling and he said so what we're going to do is we're going to be accountable to each other and every week we're going to check in and make sure that we're each writing a chapter and then my husband called out to me Donna are you into this challenge too and I thought oh yeah I'm always up for a challenge right so I thought yeah 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 I'm into it But I had no idea what I was going to write about. And I actually thought it was probably going to be my story. And then overnight, this idea of writing a children's series about my daughter and our rescue dog just came to me. It was like 
it was just channeled to me. And I've heard this before from other authors where these ideas just kind of come, you know, out of nowhere. And that was pretty much what happened. So uh, the first book is Puppy Rescue and, and it sort of started the series about how Rocky Rockstar came into our life. What can kids learn from it? They learn uh, about being kind, especially to animals, making sure that, you know, if you find a, a dog, a rescue dog, that you check them out with a vet and you make sure that they're not owned by a previous owner, they don't have microchips, all that kind of thing. So you're making sure that, you know, um, that the dog is not you know, owned by a family already. So these are the sort of things. And learning about how to care for a dog, um, what sort of food to feed it. And, uh, you know, and then this dog is teaching Jess about being kind to animals on the beach, like snakes, for instance. Um, Yeah, so there's a lot of lessons in this book that, you know, are really amazing. You say you're married to a comedian. What's it like? Is he always funny? No. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, he's not. And uh, in fact, uh, I was married to a comedian. Our marriage broke up on January the 1st, 2020. But uh, no, he wasn't always funny. And, uh, you know, in fact, uh, quite often you find that comedians have mental health issues. And uh, he certainly, um, you know, had had a share of, of problems. But, uh, you know, he was an incredibly talented comedian. In fact, he was the stuntman and warm-up crowd guy for the Police Academy stunt show at Movie World on the Gold Coast for 16 years. So that was what he was famous for, and an incredibly talented artist. I remember Gary McDonald is... Norman Gunston, his alter ego, and he had terrible mental health issues which he hid behind his alter ego. Yes. Do you find that from what you've had to do with um, your husband and other comedians that, yeah, a lot of them do hide behind that persona? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think the the hit, the need for dopamine is really their own internal need. And so to get out on the stage and make people laugh is really what is missing in their own life. And so to, to need more of that on the stage is really filling their own void. Do we do that to escape, though, most people? Do most people look to make others laugh to escape their own problems, do you think? Oh, look, yes, often that's the case for sure. I mean, often our problems are an internal reflection, I believe, of what's going on inside us, you know. With this COVID problem that's been going, you talk about 220, and it was a pretty hard year for a lot of people. Do you think a lot of people are hiding behind mental health issues that aren't recognised at the moment from what you've seen with your travels and speaking tours? Yes, certainly. And in fact, you know, I had my own uh, my own challenges because uh, not only did my marriage end just before COVID, but then all of my income was gone because I had speaking gigs, including Las Vegas, which were all cancelled because of COVID. So everything went into shutdown. So I had to pivot. I had to decide, well, what am I going to do to provide an income for myself and my daughter? And it was this funny kind of message that came to me, actually, one uh, one day and it was just this message to give 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 back to the community and so I thought now what skills do I have that I can offer the community right now who are suffering a lot of them were suffering anxiety mental health they'd lost their jobs maybe they were having problems with their relationships and in fact we know from statistics that in some countries domestic violence went up by 73 percent we had suicide rates increasing and so forth so it was a huge issue in the community so I thought 
what can I do to offer the community some way of raising, you know, the the uh, happiness and and you know improving mental health? And I thought, okay, well, I'm a personal trainer. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer some happy home workouts in the mornings, every morning on uh, Facebook Live. So that's what I did for three weeks in the mornings. And I had my happy socks on and I had families getting up, exercising to release those happy chemicals, endorphins, serotonin and dopamine. And then I decided to do the Rocky Rockstar reading on the couch in the afternoon to children while parents were really struggling with homeschooling and, you know, they were on Zoom meetings, they were doing webinars for the first time, learning all these skills that they'd never known before because they'd go into the office and do their job and now all of a sudden there was no office to go to and they had to find a new way of communicating with their team. And uh, so I thought, well, how can I entertain their children while they are home, you know, having to deal with, with business? How important is exercise in our whole physical well-being? You're a personal trainer, you're interacting with a lot of people and COVID must have also affected that. Absolutely. We've found that, you know, not only mental health and anxiety, but of course, you know, people are eating too much. They're sitting on the couch. They, they have a sedentary lifestyle even more so than ever before and especially with lockdown, okay? So we, we weren't allowed to go outside. We weren't allowed to really interact and and so people were sitting on the couch, they were watching Netflix, they were drinking alcohol and, you know, putting on weight. And, of course, this, this affects everything. It, it affects, uh, you know, our metabolism, it affects our mental health and everything. So exercise is critical to, you know, uh, speeding up our metabolism as we get older and improving our mental health. So it's, it's really a perpetual cycle. You were at one stage a lifeline counsellor. How did you help people? Well, that was an incredible experience. That was in Sydney and uh, I volunteered for two years on the phones and that, I learnt so much. I learnt so much about myself and, you know, you learn about your own trigger points and what may affect you and the phone calls that come to you and and learning that you need to disconnect from the caller when you're speaking to them so that those trigger points you know don't set your own emotions off so I got a lot of suicide calls in those times and they were the most challenging of all so I was going to say how do you handle them yeah well there's quite a technique and you know um, it's important that you're there for the caller and you hope that the caller will make some kind of agreement with you that when they get to a point where they are almost ready to take their life, you want to make an agreement with them that they will call back, they will call the line back and speak to somebody because we are there to support them. And at the end of the day, we can't be responsible for anybody's decision. It's it's everybody's choice what they choose to do in their life. But we want to be there to support them and show that there is love out there and, and who is their network? Who is their support network that they can reach out to on a daily basis and, and start to set up a suicide plan and, uh, so that they can start to plan what how they can protect themselves, how they can come out of this darkness and see some light in their life. What toll does it take on those that are taking the calls at the Lifeline call centre when they're dealing with that real tragedy on a daily basis? There's a debriefing 
So we we have a supervisor for any suicide call. As soon as we've had a suicide call, then we go into the debriefing room and we get to debrief with a supervisor. And generally, our shift will be over after that suicide call because it takes a lot out of um, yeah out of you, for sure. Is it something that lifeline callers will then need their own lifeline calls? You know, like I can just see that it would really drag you down when you're trying to lift someone up. It's easier to pull someone down than it is to lift someone up. It must be incredibly difficult. Yes, it's it's certainly challenging, but the lifeline, you know, family, I guess I call it, is just so incredibly supportive. And, you know, they, they provide so much compassionate support for their callers and their volunteers so there's a lot of support that's available and and they certainly don't leave you just to walk out of the studio and go home with all of that kind of on you so um, yeah there's a lot of support there a lot of debriefing. Now you were talking before about your speaking engagement over in the states how often are you over there speaking when you were doing it? I was first in Las Vegas in 2000 and 19 and I was speaking at the the inaugural Her Story Women's Global Empowerment Conference. So that was where women from all over the world were coming together to share their stories. And most of those stories were about overcoming adversity. There was a common thread with a lot of the stories around domestic violence, unfortunately. And it was it was held in Las Vegas in 2019. So I was really honoured to be a part of that. And I was also in the volume one Her Story Woman's Global Empowerment book. So that's where uh, 10 women, an anthology series of 10 women from around the world were sharing their stories. For people that don't know what's special about your story and or what do you share about your story when you're talking? Yes, yeah, so my story started when I was seven years old. I came from a family of five siblings. I'm the youngest and I'm a twin. I have a twin brother and uh, I was born in Auckland and my life seemed to be pretty normal until the age of seven when uh, one morning I woke up to the piercing screams of my mum and I jumped out of bed and I heard my father yelling as he chased my mum down the hallway with a knife and uh, I uh, chased after him along with uh, the rest of my siblings and my uh, mother as she was uh, trying to reach for the sliding door handle to escape, my father um, drove the knife deep into her back and she stumbled along the side path to the front of the house and she took her last breath. So uh, it was an incredibly devastating moment for me and my siblings. I then saw my father being taken away in the back of a police car and we were shuffled off to um, my cousin's house down the road and it was just the most surreal experience because I remember sitting on the couch and hearing on the radio that um, a woman in Auckland in Avondale had been murdered and I, I just couldn't believe that, you know, wow, that's my mum they're talking about. And my life just changed forever from that moment. Is that the first instance of domestic violence that you actually saw? Or was it a continuing thing and it was just the last of a stream of events? Look, I don't really recall any physical violence, to be honest. I remember lots of arguments, but nothing that escalated to that level. So it was very, it was it was shocking. It was, it was really traumatic for me. How do you look back at it now? How do you think it's affected your life? Well... 
my my trauma continued after that time because all of my siblings, including myself, were taken into foster homes. And in fact, I went to 13 foster homes and most of those foster homes were abusive. So I experienced lots of emotional and physical abuse during those uh, six years almost in foster homes. And I recall one particular foster home, it was the first one, I was seven years old. The foster father was an alcoholic and he asked me to run a bath for one of the little girls that was in the foster home. And to be honest, I had no idea how to run a bath. So I just turned on the hot water and I let it run. And then I turned off the hot water, the little girl climbed in and schooled herself. And the foster father went nuts, absolutely nuts. He took me into his room and he pulled his leather belt off his jeans and he pulled my pants down and he just belted into me until I bled. So that was my first experience in a foster home. And the last foster home that I was in, there was a very emotionally abusive woman that for some reason had it in for me. And there was a little girl, her name was Marama, a little baby actually, six month old, that came to the foster home. And she came all by herself. And this foster mother said to me, I was 11 years old, almost 12, she said to me, Donna, this is your baby. And I had no idea how babies were born. So I believed her. And I had to look after this baby. So I had to change its nappies. I had to wake up and feed it. I had to look after it. And one day when I came home from school, some four months later, Marama was gone. And I went to the foster mum and I said, where's Marama, where's my baby? And she said, she's gone back to her mother. She won't, you won't see her again. And so I had to go through, a, you know, another kind of uh, just being separated from somebody that I loved. And, and I really, I really bonded with Marama so much. So that was the kind of abuse that went on in these foster homes. And then when I was 12 years old, the social welfare authorities came to the foster home and put a very difficult decision to me that a 12-year-old should never have to make. And, and that uh, decision was either to stay in foster homes until I was 18 or to return to my father who'd been released from prison. But the hardest part about that decision was to return back to the home where my mother was murdered. So back to the memories of that morning and to a home where I remembered mum, but she was no longer there. And living with a schizophrenic, alcoholic murderer for five and a half years. Was he still an alcoholic at this stage? He was an alcoholic. Every single day he was drinking himself, uh, you know. And he would sleep with a knife next to his bed every single night. So we actually, my brothers and I had like a survival plan while we were living with him because we were living on, walking on eggshells every single day. It was, it was terrifying. It was a terrifying five and a half years. And so we like had muster stations where we all had our place to, to go if, if uh, there was any violent outbreak. What did the other kids think of your father after what had happened? They hated him. Basically, there was a lot of hatred. He was pro-Nazi and he believed in the Aryan race and Hitler and he 
was just discriminating. So we had a lot of Maori and Pacific Island friends, and he would he was just uh, you know just so awful to them. They would weren't allowed in the house, and and so yeah, it was it was a pretty awful time for me. Should he have been allowed to have had the kids back? Had had you all had all of his kids back? Should he have been allowed to? look after you guys again then considering what went on no i don't believe so i believe that was a injustice actually against us and i don't think the social welfare really was taking our our health and well-being um in priority to be honest what was their priority then what was their priority good question i really don't know but it certainly wasn't us it didn't feel like it was us and some you know 25 years later there's a huge compensation claim going on in new zealand about the children in the um, social welfare system in, in New Zealand. And it took them some six years to investigate my particular file and come back with some compensation money. And the interesting thing about that compensation money is I put that money aside because I wanted that money to have a significant impact on children's lives, a positive impact moving forward. And I didn't know how that money was going to be spent, but I knew that it was going to make a positive difference to children. And the amazing thing about that is I put that money aside and when I had these children's books channeled to me, The Adventures of Jesse and Rocky Rockstar, the publishing, the cost of publishing those two books was almost exactly the amount, this compensation money, that was paid out to me. So it was an incredible, you know, just uh, how this all, the synergy worked. How much did you get? I got $20,000. Is that enough? No, I don't believe it is. But it was all that was ever going to be paid. And, and in fact, there was some negotiating around that to even bring it up to that level. So there was a blanket offer to a lot of families, which I didn't accept. And uh, they they came back with a counter offer. What about your other brothers and sisters? Yes, my my twin brother also got a compensation, and my older brother I believe did, but he was he was dying of cancer in Memphis, and he he got a small payout before he passed. What about your twin brother? How did it affect him? Did he see what you saw? Look, I think we all had different experiences throughout the foster home. So he had his own share of of abuse, and I think being a boy. And my older brothers as well, who were quite protective of us. And of course, we were separated too through these foster homes, so we weren't always together. So um, we all had our own experiences that were very different. Got to ask on a lighter note, you've got a twin brother. Was it cool to have a brother that was a twin when you were young, when you were a kid? You always had a mate? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, to be honest, I think... We were each other's rock going through this foster home. You know, uh, the, I don't think I could have done it without him, to be honest. You know, we leaned on each other so much and, and you know, we were there for each other. And, and he, yeah, he was, he was everything to me during that time. So it, it would have been incredibly difficult without him. Are you still close? Yes, we, we kind of have our challenges. I, I don't think he agrees with the fact that I share my story. And I know that... I'm doing that because I'm helping so many people. I am helping people to believe in themselves and know that they can overcome any challenge and adversity that they may face in their life because they see that I've come out the other side and I'm happy and I'm flourishing and 
you know, I want to inspire others to believe that they can do the same. So not everyone is on that path. And so that's been a challenge for my family, I think, to see that I'm sharing my story in the media. Was there a time when you went um, through this when you could really identify with a new Donna as opposed to the old Donna Lee that had gone through all that trauma? Yes, absolutely. I really struggled through school, of course, because I also went to 13 schools and I was bullied. I was a target for bullies because I was different. I was traumatised. I probably looked and acted differently. And I never really got to secure any friend networks because I was always moving constantly. So it was really challenging for me in schools. And I did very poorly in school. And I dropped out when I was uh, 16 years old. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I went and did an adult apprenticeship and went back to study school certificate. And I had to do that in order to to sit my trade certificate marks. I had to have my school certificate. And I set my trade certificate and I was really disciplined and really dedicated. And I won the Apprentice of the Year and Golden Shears Award in New Zealand. And for me, that was just an amazing thing. It was a major breakthrough to be on the stage receiving an award by the Deputy Prime Minister of New Zealand for the Apprentice of the Year in New Zealand. And so that that was, a, I guess, a real pivotal moment in my life where I had this belief in myself that, hey, I can overcome anything. I can I can get through this and not just survive, but flourish. What did you learn in your apprenticeship other than the actual on the tools? What did you learn through the study? I learned mostly about discipline, to be honest. I learned about persistence, about, you know, really persevering and putting my heart and soul into into studying and yeah, I think the dedication was really my biggest lesson. And knowing that I can, I can, I've, I've got the intellect and I'm able to, um, you know, pass anything. Did you Putting doubt that? Your did mind, you, did yes. you doubt that you had the intellect? Yes, absolutely. Because I failed at school and, and I, I guess I was told, you know, you're, you're throughout these foster homes that I was hopeless, I was useless, I was, wasn't loved, nobody cared about me, nobody wanted me. What's the lasting memory that you have of your mother? Yeah, she had a great sense of humour. And it was funny, she used to uh, call herself Ellie, and I'd say, because her name was Alison, and I'd say, what do you mean your name's Ellie? And she'd say, oh, my name's Alligator. And she'd take out her false teeth and she'd she'd just talk with her false teeth. And it was just, she, she had a really quirky way about her. And she was very kind. She was a nurse. And so she had a real nurturing kind spirit and yeah she was very loving so I think uh, we shared some pretty happy memories together for, for those short seven years that we had. Is there something that really stands out that you still pull out of your own personal pile of memories that you constantly refer to that might get you through a hard spot or that you might share with your kids? Uh yeah, I think, you know, my mum was very positive and I know there were times throughout the marriage that she really struggled and I remember one particular time I was in the back of the car when she was driving to her brother's house very late one night 
And I remember her saying to me, quite inappropriately, I think, for, for my age, but I remember her saying, I don't think I've got long to live on this on this planet, you know? Wow. And um, I didn't understand that. You know, I was six, seven, and I didn't really understand what she meant by that. But she was so happy-go-lucky, and she was so positive, and I never saw her really down or depressed. And, and I guess that's had an impact on me because I feel, for me, I've really got this, you know, happy positive side to me that is quite contagious and you know I hope that I have that impact on my children and you know on on the community really I, I am very kind of positive and and I've got this energy about me that uh, people love so yeah I think that's probably come from my mum. Does your mother though was she by putting out that happy-go-lucky persona was she hiding stuff that she was dealing with yes yes she had she had depression and she actually had um she had lots of mental health issues and back in those days you know they they the the treatment for mental health and depression was shock treatment so she actually had shock treatment and again you know we talked about comedians and i was going to say that that happy-go-lucky mother Mm. did you marry your mother in a way yeah maybe maybe look I've never thought of it that way to be honest that's that's an interesting insight and possibly yes that could that couldn't could be the case you know I know that I just there is definitely a connection for me with comedy and I always had this um, love for Alan Elder from MASH, you know, I had such a crush on him. You know, I loved his dry, witty sense of humour. And you know, every single day after school, I would be watching MASH, and it was something that I really enjoyed. So I think comedy is is definitely something that, you know, I love, and that positive attitude. And I think every day, you know, we have a choice in life, how we show up in our life, and we can choose how we live and we can choose you know to to be sad or we can choose to be happy and that's that's kind of how I like to show up in my life is what what things make me happy and choosing those things whether it's gratitude whether it's walking on the beach whether it's listening to comedy you know whether it's exercise all those things that help lift my mental health and can help others. You loved Alan Alda. Mm. You loved his wit. You loved his charm. But it's interesting also the Hawkeye Pierce. He had quite a dark side as well. And is that also a relationship that you had with your mother? You could see that dark side of the depression that then you related to your husband, the comedy you liked? Look, I'm not sure, to be honest. Look, you know, I was young. I I don't know that I could have looked that deep into it. And even with Hawkeye, I don't don't know that I really saw a lot of the dark side being so young. But when I look at it now, certainly there was. There was a dark side to to that whole experience of, of, you know, that set and that that, that series. Because you were looking at your mother, you're seeing happy-go-lucky mum, but she's dealing with a whole bunch of stuff, your father. Mm. for just for one thing 
that she's dealing with. So it's just interesting that the the selections that you made that made you happy were reflective of also a dark side. Yes, yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a, a synergy there, uh, without a doubt. And yeah, I think, uh, you know, with my mum, there was, you know, she was in a controlling relationship, which had been going on for a long time. And I'm sure that at some point that depression, that sadness must have come out in some aspect of her life that I may have seen. But it's not, it's not something I recall or remember now. And I guess I've chosen to remember the good, good side of her, the good times. What about your father? What do you remember about him? You know, it was really interesting when we returned back to the house and we never spoke about the death of, of my mum. It was never spoken about. It was just, you, you'd never mentioned it. And Did you want to? I was scared. I was afraid of him, and I knew that he what he was capable of. So uh, we were working, walking on eggshells constantly, and you were behaving, you know, just to keep things calm and peaceful. And I guess I didn't know when it would set off, when when he would fly off the handle, and he and he did that often, you know, after he'd been drinking, and so you just kept things really calm and at peace and. And so to bring up mum, it just was unspoken. It was something that he clearly didn't want to speak about. And so we never spoke about it. And, you know, when I when I think about that now, it, it's such an eerie, strange thing to, to have that dark energy in the home for so many years and, and not to have been able to speak about that. What did your older brothers want to say and what did they say behind his back? They were very protective, and I guess they were always in high alert. So they were always concerned about our safety, being younger and looking after us, and their own safety. So that was that was paramount for them. So, you know, they had a lot of hatred for him, but it was like too bad choices. You stay in foster homes where you're being abused or you go back to somebody that you kind of know, uh, you know, okay, that he's capable of this, but we're together. We're reunited. The siblings are all together. So there was something good that came out of this. And so it's the good and the bad, I guess. So they, they, they they were protective. They were high alert and they just managed as best they could, really. And we we were taking a lot of drugs. We were taking a lot of drugs. Uh, uh, more so my, bro- my brothers, my older brothers, you know, really heavy, heavy-duty drugs. What sort Tin- of drugs? LSD, trippers, pinkies, all kinds of stuff like that. A lot of marijuana on a daily basis. Just to numb our pain. We had no, no support. We had no counselling. So we weren't able to, you know, talk about our trauma. And so, you know, you just buried it. You just numb yourself with whatever. And my father used to buy me bottles of sherry brandy when I was 12 years old, 13 years old, to pretty much justify his own drinking habits, I believe. So, uh, you know, so I, I had access to alcohol, which my friends thought was 
just amazing, you know. We could I had no curfew. I could just hang out on the streets till all hours of the night. I had my own alcohol. I had access to marijuana. We grew it in the backyard. Um, and my father would drink himself to oblivion and be in bed about 7 o'clock at night. What's the worst thing you got up to at that stage? Oh, I remember one night I was in the back seat of my brother's Ford, um, no, it was a Morris, Morris Minor van with his friends in the front and my girlfriend and I in the back, and we had had... A hash block, and we splashed a psychedelic stick on the inside of this van, and we drove up the Waitakere Ranges, which were these incredibly winding, winding roads. I don't even know how we survived, and we felt it felt like we were like on a, another planet. We were just tripping out in the back of this Morris Minor, and just winding roads going, you know, honestly, I don't know how we survived. The Donna you are now, if you were to go up to your father, what would you say to him? How would you deal with the whole problem? Wow, that's an interesting question, uh, one I've never been asked before. You know, I think there would actually be a level of compassion, and it sounds sounds unusual to be saying that but I I know that he had a really tough upbringing and I know that a lot of his his experiences from his childhood reflected on his behaviors and his personality and probably his mental health and how he acted out in his adult life he had a very dysfunctional childhood and he had a domineering mother and I think he had a lack of respect for women and so all of this played out in his adult life and his relationships and he was controlling he was narcissistic and you know I guess he was drinking to avoid the pain that he was suffering too so on some level, I do have compassion for him. And I I do have a level of forgiveness as well, which sounds really odd. Is that your own personal healing, though? Yes, yes. Because yes. if you hadn't done that and you went and approached him, is there that level of animosity still? Yes. Yes, and there certainly was when I was younger. So I've done a lot of work there, and you know, I think it's also about releasing myself of, you know, uh, that just that pain, and and uh, I think forgiving him has helped to free myself actually. But can you really forgive someone like that? Yeah, I think I think again, it's it's very liberating when you get to that point where you can and. I, I think there's always there's always two sides to every story and I think there was a lot of dysfunction on both sides and you know these things can things can escalate so quickly in a dysfunctional situation and there was a lot of intense passion there was a lot of intense um, stress and it just came to 
it came to a point that morning that just blew out of out of control and you know I think it's 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 devastating it's sad the way it happened but there were choices that were made all the way along that path to lead to what happened that morning and both adults are responsible for those choices and you know I I think um, it's just it's just a, a, it was a bad match it was a bad match of two people when you walked away when you moved out of home what was the what why did you move out of home you, you've gone back to another bad sort of situation from being in a foster home why did you finally leave home my father drank himself to death when i was 17 he was drinking every single day and he was on the operating theater having his second major bypass operation when he died so so I had to support myself and I had to get a job and the family home was sold and I had to get out and you know survive and and flat and support myself so there wasn't really any choice you know so how did you turn that around to getting that discipline to win the golden shears oh I went on a journey of lots of uh, you know uh, just taking any job I could and I remember the first job I got I actually got sacked for so I uh, turned up to work and and the boss was you know he was uh, he was a chauvinist really and uh, I remember uh, that evening going out to the movies and um, deciding that I, I wasn't going to go to work the next day and I rang in sick and and he rang he rang up home and he uh, spoke to my father, and uh, my father said, "Oh no, no, she's 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 been fine. She's gone to the movies, and and uh, the next day I got the sack. So, you know, I had lots of jobs that were just dead end, going nowhere, and um, and I was taking drugs, and uh, it was it was one night I actually reached out to Lifeline, and uh, you know I was in a really dark place, and I knew that my life was." heading down a really bad path and I had to get help and yeah so I reached out to Lifeline and that sort of started this kind of slow healing for me. I I went in and got some face-to-face counselling and I applied for a apprenticeship in fashion and design at Ambler Shirts and they put me through trade certificate and, and I just was determined. There was just this determination about me. I think because I was paying for this myself and, and you know, I was responsible for, for getting through this and passing. And so there was this whole other level of determination that, you know, I just was not going to let myself down. And I just applied myself. What about your other brothers? How has it affected them throughout their lives? Oh, it's been really mixed, you know. Um, They've all gone on their own journeys and, uh, you know, most often I think they haven't really dealt with with the past. I've sort of buried it and pretended that that stuff hasn't hasn't happened. And, like, I think we all deal with this stuff differently and and I can't judge them for that. It's We all have our own path and, and... yeah, I, I think there's been some dysfunction there, but they're not in agreement with me about sharing my story, as I said. And, and um, yeah, so there's been some disconnection within the family, and, and that's sad that it's it's turned out that way. My brother in Memphis was 
very supportive of me sharing my story and uh, he was he was behind what I was doing with uh, with the dream guards and and being on the stage and empowering kids to stand up to bullying because of my experience that was really you know I guess that was empowering for me to have somebody in the family supporting me but uh, he passed away when he was 55 of cancer so yeah so I've I've sort of been traveling this road alone and is it a lonely road or are you finding that through what you're doing is fulfillment enough it's been tough it's been tough because I have had to stand strong to my values I've had to stand strong to my purpose and know that I am making a difference and I've had a lot of people reach out to me teenagers and and adults that have shared how much my story has impacted on their lives. In fact, you know, teenagers that have said that they were suicidal and just hearing my story actually shifted their whole mindset. So the fact that that has been the impact has has been enough purpose for me to continue doing what I'm doing. And I, I look at people like Oprah Winfrey, you know, that has also had to really stand strong to their own values and 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 beliefs and and regardless of whether their family support what they do or not you know you you have to you have to stand strong and 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 true to who you are and and know that you're here for a purpose were you ever suicidal no did you think that you might get to that so you sought help Look, I don't think I ever, I've never had suicidal tendencies, but I certainly knew that uh, taking the, the drugs regularly was not, was not a good way to deal with my pain. And my future wasn't looking positive, you know. I, I was making lots of bad choices in my life and it, it wasn't leading in the way I wanted it to. So I knew that I needed help. I knew that there was a lot of trauma there that I needed to deal with, a lot of pain from my past that I couldn't do on my own. It was a hard, hard thing to do, but it was the best thing I could do was to reach out and, and start that, that kind of um, process of healing. I've heard a lot of people say over the time that they've had to work on themselves. What did you do that you really made a difference to yourself for yourself. I've tried many, many different therapies over my life and from counselling to psychology to hypnotherapy, cognitive behavioural therapy and just recently actually following my marriage breakup in January last year I went and had NLP and timeline therapy and by far it's been the most profound shift in my mental health than any other therapy that I've tried. And it was fast and it was profound. And, you know, I learned about how we all have limiting beliefs in our timeline that, you know, develop our model of the world, how we view the world, how we choose to see from our own perspective and every day we make choices from that model of the world and it's phenomenal how that can impact on our everyday life and and create patterns that are not serving us what's your worst pattern 
My worst pattern is self-sabotage. So I guess not being true to myself and compromising who I am for the sake of being with somebody else and probably attracting a narcissistic type of partner into my life, which has been, of course, my role model of my father, probably more than anything. With the breakdown of the marriage that you had last year, uh, how's that left you feeling then that you've repeated those patterns again and then you're still looking to move forward or has the NLP got you through it? The NLP helped immensely. I, I actually have completely transformed and it's it's incredible actually. The, the changes I've seen in myself in the last 14 months has been phenomenal. My mindset is completely different. I am more assertive. I don't allow people's opinions to matter so much in my life anymore. I, I have a different perspective on life. It's, it's been phenomenal. It's been incredible. Talk us through the NLP process then. Uh, the NLP process, so it's all about understanding, you know, uh, that we all have limiting beliefs that are set in our timeline. And some of these limiting beliefs are even even prior to our birth. So they can be genetic. They can be um, from, you know, previous previous lives. And so when we have an experience in our life, we develop a belief system from that experience. So for instance, for me growing up, one of my beliefs was I was told that my twin brother was incredibly creative and artistic and you're not so creative you don't you're not really artistic Donna you are more business-like you have a business mind and you will be a businesswoman so all through my life I believed that I wasn't creative but the golden shares award it should have reinforced your belief that you're creative yes but I guess the, the Golden Shares Award was more, it's it's drafting, it's pattern making. And so there's not a lot of creativity around that. It's, it's more mathematical, actually. Um, so it's all about formulas and measuring and creating patterns. So there's not a lot of room for creativity as such. So I, I had this belief, uh, one of many, about about myself and these are set in your timeline throughout your life and if you're not aware of these beliefs that you're not good enough or that you're not worthy enough or that you're not loved or whatever it may be whatever these beliefs may be affect your your choices in life and how you show up in your life and and they have a profound impact on how you view the world and the choices you make every day when your father passed away was it a relief Yes, there was a relief. It was mixed. It was mixed. There was a relief that, I guess, the fear of him being around, there was always a fear. So there was a relief of not being in fear so much. But there was also sadness. There was sadness about the loss of of the hope of um, a father that I wished I had, you know, the the grieving of a father I wished I had. I guess it's a bit like a marriage, you know, when you grieve the loss of a marriage, it's the grief of what you wished you had or the future. It's 
you know, um, you're grieving the future of, of, of that. And so I guess it was mixed. It was a mixed feeling. You talk about your brothers not liking you to share your story publicly. How do you feel about everyone knowing your deepest, darkest secrets? I think people are inspired by stories of true trauma to triumph. And I believe that what I really want, the, the, the final message I want people to be left with is that no matter what darkness you face in your life, you can come out the other side flourishing. And I believe that I'm an example of that. I'm an example of that because I am walking the talk and I put my health and nutrition as a priority in my life and I encourage others to do the same. I talk about the natural ways that we can improve our mental health, vitamin D, sunshine, you know, laughter, hugs, socialization, creativity. You know, there's so many ways that we can improve our mental health. And, you know, I implement those into my life every day. Gratitude is a phenomenal way we can improve our mental health. And, you know, creating the amazing Global Gratitude Chain project has, has been, you know, uh, an incredible way to to connect the world and demonstrate that gratitude is is one way we can all put this into our daily rituals. That global gratitude chain, tell us all about that. It started when we were doing a Dream Guards showcase to the community. And the Dream Guards it was a show that my husband and I did together. And we went into schools. It was a high energy interactive show teaching kids about standing up to bullying and abuse in their life. And the showcase was demonstrating to the community, you know, the show so that hopefully some of the schools would come on board and we may get some government funding. And during the showcase, we had some project tables. And one of the project tables was a gratitude table. And they were little links of paper where people would come to the table and write down what they are grateful for in their life. And one of the girls that was on this table was a 14-year-old girl. Now, her family had reached out to me 12 months previously because their daughter was being bullied for nine months in year nine and she was suicidal and they reached out to me late on a Saturday evening asking if I could come and chat with their daughter and I called in the next morning and I bought some resources some affirmations and some books and I sat down and I spoke to the daughter and I also spoke to the family and I shared my story. After sharing my story, this 14-year-old girl came up to me and she hugged me with tears in her eyes and she said, if you can overcome what you've overcome, I can get through what I'm going through. And within three weeks, she volunteered at this showcase event and she was on this table, this gratitude table. And after a number of links were written, she started creating this little chain. Like, if you can imagine, one of those Christmas chains that we made when we were kids. And that was the start of the Global Gratitude Chain Movement. And now we are receiving gratitude links from all over the world, from Hong Kong, from Germany, from 
Ireland, from America, from Singapore, India, everywhere. And this global gratitude chain is all about connecting the world through a mindful moment of, of gratitude. What and, are some of the ones that stand out to you? Well, there's been some significant ones, but uh, I'll share three. So uh, one is from a inspirational speaker that shared how she was grateful that she escaped the Bosnian war with her family and survived. There was another one that uh, was a professor that said that he was grateful that he survived three suicide attempts. And the last one I really love, it was from a four-year-old little boy, and he said that he was grateful for his robot dinosaur. (laughs) So, you know, the, the shares are are just beautiful and some are very profound there's a lot of domestic violence shares um yeah so just amazing what did you write in yours i wrote that i was grateful for my resilience that i've developed and the life lessons that i've learned through you know all of my experiences in life and that i'm grateful that i have two beautiful children in my life that uh you know, balanced and healthy. Did they suffer bullying? Yes. How did you help them through what you've done and what you're doing? My daughter actually suffered um, badly in year nine, which is statistically one of the worst uh, years for girls to be bullied. And uh, she she was being bullied by a close friend of hers and uh, they all sort of ganged up on her. And I went for the tough love to be honest I really I took away all of her social media because most of the bullying was happening via um, online and this is what happens mostly with girls and uh, I said look the best thing right now is that you don't have the social media you're not exposed to this you know this toxic abuse what was her reaction though the tough love uh, she wasn't happy at first she, she <laughs> really struggled with it she also saw a psychologist, which helped her, like on a on a weekly basis, with some, you know, um, tangible tools that helped us helped her in the playground when she had to face these bullies, and uh, you know that that was amazing. But the the incredible thing about the social media is she adapted so quickly within a matter of a month. I said to her, how are you going with this, you know, not having Snapchat, not having Facebook and Instagram? And she said to me, actually, Mum, I'm not missing it. And I think what she was really expressing is she wasn't missing the abuse. And she went without that for nine months. And at the end of that, I was the one saying, well, so do you want some of your social media back? She said, I'm not really sure, Mum. I might... I might just try with Instagram because it's a gentle kind of platform and and it was phenomenal actually. It was really incredible and the bully, the main perpetrator actually came back and apologised for her abuse. Why? She changed schools and I think she had an experience where she may have felt isolated, where she was trying to, you know, make new friends and she probably felt alone and she may have felt what my daughter had felt being isolated and being disconnected from the group and and being bullied so she probably had her own experience and and felt some form of empathy and reached out to Jess and it was amazing did she forgive her yes she did how did that feel for you seeing your daughter work through something like that oh 
it was, I was so proud, incredibly proud. When you had kids, because of what you'd gone through, because of the way your father acted, did you keep an eye on your husband because of it? No, I didn't see that my husband was had the same traits as my father at all. I do remember this relief that was just like this weight lifted off me when my daughter turned eight, when she got past seven. It was profound. And it was just, you know, related to my own life as a seven-year-old and what I suffered. And there was just this really, wow, she's got past that age and she's and she's healthy and she's doing well. What did your kids think when they were able to understand your story and what you'd been through? I didn't share with my children till they were 11 and 12 and they were blown away. They were blown away. They they really had no idea and they yeah, they were uh, I don't know, they just shocked, I guess is the word. You know, they could never see that in me because I'm positive and happy and, and they've seen a person that's, I guess, I guess has is, is overcome that stuff and is helping others. I, I think they were, they were inspired that I was using my experiences and my childhood to help others. I think that's been really inspiring to them. So when did you get into the speaking circuit and make that decision to share your story and start talking to others? When I shared my story with my husband, and it took me a while to share it because I'd only really shared my story with about four or five people. And the reason why is because I found that when I shared my story, I almost felt like their reaction to my story, it was quite traumatizing at times because they were so shocked at what I had been through. It was like reliving it in a way, you know, on some level anyway. It's a strange feeling, but so I sort of held back from sharing my story and I didn't share it with many. So when I shared it with my husband, he said, oh, you are an example of a person that can overcome anything and not just you know, get through it, but be just so happy and flourishing. And you can help so many people to to get through their own adversity. So have you thought about sharing your story, you know, in our show? And, and so that sort of evolved from a show that was about health and nutrition and magic and balloons and happy-go-lucky to a much more profound show about life lessons and about tools that we were teaching kids. What was your husband's reaction other than the obvious when he found out what you'd gone through? He was completely blown away. He, He could not believe that I had been through what I'd been through and here I am, this person that's just you know, bubbly, vibrant, happy and positive and there wasn't a synergy. He couldn't see how I could have gone through that and be this person. You are a motivational speaker these days and are you back on the circuit now that because of uh, the restrictions because of COVID? My first speaking gig was in November in Gladstone and it was to a group of domestic violence survivors woman and that was incredibly inspiring. These were women that had been through all kinds of abusive relationships and backgrounds, even with abusive mothers. And 
they went through this incredibly empowering course where they learnt about sharing their story and about just stepping into their own self-love and they had lessons in deportment they had lessons in makeup and hair and they chose a beautiful outfit that they could then walk on the catwalk and their story was was shared in front of their family and friends and the confidence in these women within three days from coming into this this studio, this course, and being really reluctant about sharing their their story and being so vulnerable to being this this confident, you know, woman that was was walking on this catwalk and being so empowered in front of their family and friends. It was an incredible transformation. They're learning from you, but what do you learn from them? my story is echoed in their lives and that every single person can tap into their own resilience that's within them and overcome anything that they have suffered and flourish and these women were examples of that and I just was so inspired to see that again and again in these women from all different backgrounds and and, and races and, and religions. You've been through some pretty horrific experiences. In your dealing with other people that have had them as well, have any really stood out that you've that shocked you? Because not much should shock you from what you've been through. Yes, there was uh, there was one story of uh, of a woman that her. Her mother had prostituted her as a 10-year-old for a number of years. And this woman, you know, has all sorts of uh, problems with intimacy in her relationships and uh, moving forward now, and, and it's affected her. And for me, that was incredibly traumatic to hear that. It was devastating to hear that a mother could do that to her own child. That really moved me. That touched my heart a lot. How did you help her? I think in sharing my story uh, on that day, she was one of these women. And, uh, you know, sharing my story, she uh, she spoke to me after and she was moved by the fact that she'd forgiven her mum and there was this synergy that she'd experienced adversity and she was overcoming that and and uh, through this course she was she felt like she was flourishing and so she saw she saw a connection there and yeah i think she was inspired by it do you need to have gone through what you've gone through to share a story and message of positivity and resilience definitely not there are so many stories that you know uh, people experience every single day. I mean, stories that we are seeing so common at the moment with COVID, you know, people that have just have lost their jobs and have reinvented themselves, have pivoted back to um, a career that they may have had in their past or, you know, uh, started a job that, uh, their own business. Because of COVID, because people have lost their security, they are choosing to step out of their comfort zone and and maybe start a new business that that they may have always wanted to but have been fearful of doing that and and 
I think having that time to reflect and think about what's really important in their life and having a purpose has helped them to kind of step into a, a, their power in a way and and take that risk. Sort of like a COVID silver lining. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think there is a silver lining to this. And I know for myself, I uh, I pivoted back to my personal training and it's been so inspiring to help others that have just recently over the last 12 months or so really been in dark places because of their own experiences through COVID and I've been able to help them with life coaching, with my uh, personal training and even the nutrition to live a better life, live a happier life and it's, it's nice to see them transforming. Why did you become a personal trainer in the first place? That's interesting, you know. My passion was around helping children actually curb childhood obesity because uh, children, uh, we were seeing genetic obesity and children were uh, born with more fat cells and, and so we're seeing this obesity in newborn children and I wanted to educate them about eating healthier, making healthier choices and exercising and that exercise can be fun. And so that was all part of the Dream Guard show was to make the exercises, the workouts fun. The Dream Guard show, what happens? Well, it's a it's an interactive high energy show and it's you know, magic, it's balloon artistry, but it's it's about empowering kids to believe in their own in their own magic within them. And tapping into their own resilience and knowing that they actually do have the tools within them. And also, you know, uh, being there for each other. And this show was all around my peace tools. My peace tools came to me in a meditation, actually. I went into a meditation with this intention to come up with some tools that uh, represented the universal sign for stop, which is hand up high in the air, five fingers. And I wanted to come out of this meditation with an acronym that would be simple for children to understand. And I came out of this meditation with my peace tools. And these peace tools have transformed and saved lives. So could you just expand? Yes. So the, the peace tools, so they start with the, with the letter P. And the letter P stands for protect yourself and be powerful. And it's about standing tall with your shoulders back and your head held high. And it's statistically proven that you're less likely to be bullied or abused because you're showing yourself to be confident. And the E in peace stands for escape the situation. And it's all about uh, walking away, running away if somebody's trying to abuse you. Don't allow other people to, you know, uh, to abuse you in your life. So, and then the A stands for armor and it's about using your powerful tool, your imagination, to build uh, an imaginary armour around your body so other people's opinions don't matter in your world. And I talk about the lion doesn't lose sleep over the opinions of sheep, so be the lion. And then the C in peace is creating strong friendships in your community of like-minded people that show you compassion and kindness and have your back. And then the E is express your emotions. And it's about reaching out for the help and support you need if you're being bullied or abused. And it's about being the upstander in your community and helping and high-fiving people that, you know, need your help. And 
you know, that's really important, I think, because a lot of people that are being bullied feel isolated and alone. So reaching out for the help. And so we supported kid, Paradise Kids and Kids Helpline in our shows. And so uh, we gave out a lot of material to the children so that they could have the, the phone numbers available uh, to, to be able to call those services if they needed them. What was the reaction that you saw from the kids? Oh, they loved they loved the concept, you know. And uh, we created an ambassador program, a Dream Guard ambassador program, where the school, the the students would nominate a, an ambassador for for the school, and this ambassador would uphold the peace tools in the school community, and the students would know that 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 student would be a place to go, a person to go to if they needed help or support, if they were being picked on or bullied. It's a big part of your life, this bullying. What do you still want to achieve in that sphere and in other spheres in your life? You know, I still see myself speaking. That's that's really my passion. And uh, so coming out of COVID, I hope that I'm going to be on more stages. And uh, uh, so that's that's really important to me. I've also created an app, which is a uh, free life-saving app and we've had something like 17 1800 downloads on that app so that app has 13 life-saving support services including lifeline kids helpline paradise kids headspace e-safety commissioner so a lot of uh, you know a lot of platforms for people, uh, kids that are being bullied, as well as adults. There's a DV1800 support line for domestic violence. And, uh, you know, you just tap on any one of those support services and you go straight to their website where you can get further resources and reach out. We don't tend to think of adults being bullied so much these days. Is it a big thing? Yes, yes, it's a, it's a huge problem in the corporate field, absolutely. And you know, uh, sadly, it's 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 a huge problem for people, and it affects their their productivity, it affects their their performance, it affects their mental health. What about your mental health? Dealing with all of this stuff on a continual basis, does it get you down? Do you constantly need to keep yourself revved up? I have a, a great support network myself. If I need to debrief. I have uh, people, professionals that I can go to, to to chat with, and and I understand that that's that's really important if needed. And, you know, I I always believe that working on yourself and your mental health is an investment in you. But generally, I feel that I'm able to deal with things on a, a level where I don't allow them to trigger me. And I know my triggers. I understand where my triggers are. So I, I tend to be able to deal with that pretty well. Your app, how do people find out about it if they want to download it and check it out? How do they do that? Yeah, so it's just uh, through the app store and it's the Dream Guards and it's a free app. So you can download that. And also through my books, The Adventures of Jesse and Rocky Rockstar. So the uh, QR code is in the back of those books. So when you purchase those books, you can download the app. You want to grab the book and just show sure. show that camera yeah. over there and we'll sure. have a look where it actually is. So there's a, a QR code. That one over there. Yep. 
It's a, a QR code right there, and you just hold your phone over it like we do in the restaurants nowadays when we are uh, signing in for COVID, and you download the app. And on the app, not only is 13 Life Saving Support Services, but also we have we have meditations and uh, positive mindset videos. How important is it to meditate in this day in this day and age with COVID and all of the things that we're having to deal with in this fast-paced society? Well, I think it's a great tool uh, to to uh, put into your daily rituals is uh, is meditation. You know, it's it's self-love and it's finding uh, you know peace and a peace. And I th- I think it's an important important part of our everyday. When do you expect to get back to full-time speaking and going overseas and doing all of that that sort of thing? Do you have a, a forecast of when you expect it to start coming to fruition again? Look, you know, that's a tough call. It's a tough question. You know, I I, I wish I had a crystal ball with that. I, I am going to start being very proactive with sharing my books and my author journey through libraries and that kind of thing. And I have a, a couple of small speaking gigs coming up. And But internationally, I think that's a fair way off, to be honest. Yeah, I'm not in a big hurry to be going overseas at this stage. I'm happy to be staying within Australia. Where do you want to target, though, if you're to start doing some small stuff? Where are you going to target? Where are you going to speak? And where are you going to go? Mostly domestic violence events. Uh, yeah, so empowering people, uh, you know, to to recognise the red flags. You talk about red flags. Yeah. What are the biggest red flags people have got to look out for? Uh, Gaslighting. Gaslighting's a a big one. So tell us about gaslighting. What's it all about? So gaslighting is where you may be feeling really uncomfortable because your partner has belittled you in some way. Maybe it's a situation where you have responded to something they've said and they turn that over back onto you. For instance, they may say, you're oversensitive. You have overreacted to the situation. But in fact, the way that they are behaving and the way that they are putting you down, the way that they are, uh, they may be, uh, you know, abusive toward you and they are choosing to turn it back onto you. So it's, uh, you become you start to question whether it in fact is yourself that's got the issue or and whether you are seeing it clearly or not. So it's it's creating the self-doubt within you about your own values and that's gaslighting. If you could change one thing about your life, what would it be? Gosh, <laughs> I, I actually, I don't, I see all of my experiences in my life as a blessing now, to be honest the good and the bad, the suffering and, you know, the happy times. Because I really believe that every part of my life is a lesson. And it's happened to me for a reason, you know. And I'm not, I'm not regretful about any of it. I, I feel so grateful for my life. And, you know, no matter what, no matter how hard it's been, no matter, you know, I'm grateful for all of it. So I don't, I don't have any aspect of my life that I have any regret for. I wish it was different. What's the overlying theme then that you try and 
get across to people with all of your shows and your books and all of the public demonstrations that you do do what's the overlying theme that you try and get across that we all have resilience within us and we all have the ability to overcome any challenge and adversity and that there is gifts in suffering if we can choose to see it that way and that if we can embrace the life lessons that all our experiences teach us, then we can come out the other side flourishing and able to inspire others to do the same. And, you know, I believe that we all are in a position to live our best life. And if we choose to do that. Well, it's an absolute gift having you here in the studio and Donna Lee Perfect. Thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Thank you very much, Mark. Appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by Mary Mark Medical. Mary Mark Medical is your local medical practice in Gympie, specialising in quality family medical care. Are you always sick? Ranging from acute medical issues to management of long-term chronic conditions. When you need to get better, even if you have complex health problems, get the right diagnosis with Mary Mark Medical. Contact Mary Mark Medical in Gympie on 54811873 or find them at 18 Young Street. The podcast is also brought to you by Gympie Foam and Rubber, your local store that specialises in foam cup to size. They've got all sorts of good stuff like upholstery and craft foam, even loose fitting foam. The shop is packed with things like mattresses and pillows. Ah, not so squeezy. Now, they'll help you get down and dirty and save your feet with rubber flooring and mats, anti-fatigue matting, and they have industrial mats and rubber. If they don't have it, Andrew will get it in for you. Plus, for Over the Bonnet listeners, mention the show and ask for your discount and you'll receive 10% off the price. That's right, 10%. Only for Over the Bonnet listeners when you mention the show and you have to ask for your discount. That's at Gimpy Foam and Rubber. We can't go without mentioning Luscious Slicks, 100% fruit ice cream. You can find them at local markets and all sorts of events. Mm, They taste good. They are a really delicious alternative to conventional ice cream. Now that's the stuff you may as well strap straight to your thighs. But. With Luscious Licks, it's completely dairy-free, gluten-free, and with no added sugar because there's nothing added. And best of all, it's guilt-free and it tastes great. Look out for Luscious Licks in the pink marquee at a market or event near you. And finally, the show is brought to you by NICAD Earth Moving, that specialises in roadworks, house pads, site cleanups, land clearing, dam construction, even dewatering and swamp drainage. I didn't even know you could do that. They have a 140H grader, which is big, and their Positrack Bobcat is also huge. There's a D65 dozer, three excavators for hire, including a 20-ton, 8-ton and a 2.5-ton. Plus, they provide side truck hire and even have a roller and a water truck. So contact Carl Dakin at NICAD Earth Moving on 0488 228806 
and the earth will move for you.